So what is the unpardonable sin? Is there an unpardonable sin? Is it possible for you to commit the unpardonable sin? And we're going to talk about that this evening. So stand with me, please, as we look in the book of Matthew. We're going to start in chapter 12, verse number 22. Matthew 12, verse number 22. Then was brought unto him, and of course it's talking about Jesus. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand." And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now notice carefully verses 31 and 32. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him neither in this world, neither in the world to come. And before we pray, let me just mention here about verse number 32 that this doesn't have anything to do with the subject tonight, but there are a lot of people who take verse number 32. When I say a lot of people, I'm speaking about Roman Catholics who use verse 32 to try to prove that there are uh, some sins that will not be forgiven in this life, but will indeed be forgiven in the life to come, meaning that in purgatory you'll be able to work off some of the sins that you've committed. Well, this verse is not talking about purgatory. It's simply a a statement here, an emphatic statement, that this sin will not be forgiven. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. Uh, Bless as we preach the message tonight. Help us to reach some understanding about these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you have probably said in a service that when the preacher was done preaching, he gave an invitation, and in the invitation he gave a very solemn warning. And he said some words to this effect, that there is a sin that is so heinous, there is a sin that is so great, it is so repulsive, that God absolutely will not forgive this sin. He'll tell you that uh, this is the worst of all sins. It's the worst of the worst. And the blood of Jesus Christ can never wash this sin away. And then he'll ask, or he'll say, you do not want to commit this sin. It's the unpardonable sin. Well, the preacher is referring to this passage in Matthew chapter 12 in the parallel passage that we find in the book of Mark. And he tells you that there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. And the preacher and the evangelist will, will define this sin as the final rejection of Jesus Christ. And he says that this is resistance against the Holy Spirit. That you can resist the Spirit to the point and resist him so strongly that God will not 
you have committed an unpardonable sin. So they say then that this is the final rejection and that's the unpardonable sin. Well, I would agree that a person who dies without Christ has committed a sin for which he won't be forgiven. But I disagree that that is the subject of Matthew chapter 12. Now, actually, when you die not having received Christ as your Savior, you have committed a sin that won't be forgiven, but that's not the defining sin because the Bible teaches that any sin that you commit is a sin that will send you to hell. So it's not just a sin of rejecting Christ. Uh, It's every sin that you have committed in your life. Those are all sins that would condemn you straight to a devil's hell. Now, there are many people who uh, hear the gospel of Christ, and they do refuse to believe. Then later on, they hear the gospel of Christ again, and this time they do believe. So obviously, the former sin of unbelief has been forgiven. So we couldn't be talking here about simple rejection of the gospel of Christ. That can't be what we're speaking of when the Bible talks about the the unpardonable sin. And if you think about it, uh, how many times would you have to commit this sin for it to actually become unpardonable? So it's not simple rejection of the gospel of Christ. Many uh, preachers and evangelists will say that and they try to make it so, but that simply does not fit the context of what we find in Matthew chapter 12. I want to throw in, throw in a little piece here that's really not a part of the message either, but uh, I'm going to give this to you anyway. We, have a, uh, uh, we used to have a track here in the church that was used in soul winning, and this was a track that was written by Curtis Hudson from the Sword of the Lord. And he said that you only need to repent of one sin, and that is the sin of unbelief. And he said that is the sin that sends you to hell. Well, I threw those tracks away because that is a misrepresentation of the gospel of Christ. Men cannot be saved unless they're willing to repent of all of their sins and then to receive Christ as their Savior. And anything that stops short of true evangelical repentance is not the true gospel of Christ. You may not be aware of this, but uh, you remember when we used to, used to use the old red hymn books here? Is there, some of you remember that? We had the old red hymn books that was produced by the sword of the Lord. It was called Soul Stirring Hymns. And uh, there's a song that we sang in that, uh, in that book. And when the hymn book was revised, this song was changed. Curtis Hudson, who was the editor of the sword of the Lord, took songs that were in the hymn book and he edited out nearly every reference to repentance in that hymn book. There's a song that we sing, an old account settled. And, and the verse of the song goes, O sinner, seek the Lord, repent of all your sin, for thus he hath commanded if you would enter in. And Curtis Hudson altered that and took repentance out of it and made it say, O sinner, seek the Lord, be cleansed from all of your sin. He took repentance out because he really didn't understand what the Bible teaches about repentance. Now, I do understand that since then, uh, some of the... Uh, hymns that were in that book after it was revised have been revised again. But one thing I know that hasn't taken place, and that is that the sword of the Lord has not retracted that uh, that little track that Curtis Hudson wrote, and they still offer that, and you can still buy that track from them. Now, this will help you understand a little bit better, those that, that know some more about this, why I keep us away from the sword of the Lord. And I'll keep us away from them until they repent of, of not understanding the doctrine of repentance. Now, I spoke to uh, Dr. Mark Rasmussen down at West Coast about this, 
And uh, he directed me to his father's book in which he wrote against Curtis Hudson. And he said uh, uh, his book he called Curtis Hudson's Teachings Heresy. And so I would say if that's true, then come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. If somebody is not teaching the truth of the gospel, that's somebody you need to stay away from. Well, that's just a side note for you. I threw that in for free. And uh, not going to cost you a thing. So let's look at the scriptures here. And let's see what, what Jesus is talking about concerning the unpardonable sin. First of all, I want us to note the reality of the sin. Because the Bible does tell us that there is this sin. It tells us about this sin. Jesus says here in Matthew, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Before we go on, I think all of us need to very clearly understand what the Bible means when it says blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Well, here's a, here's a, a definition for you. Blasphemy is intentionally and openly speaking evil against the holy God by defaming and mocking him. So blasphemy is a willful sin. It's not just ordinary rejection of God. This is a sin that, that's intentionally committed. So the sin described in these verses is very specific to the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a sin that's directed at one person of the Godhead. Now, it's a sin that could be committed because Jesus here warns the people of it. But, but if it's a common sin, then it must be something that we would see often throughout the Bible. But I don't think it's an, uh, it is a common sin. I think it's an uncommon sin. It's not something that you see every day. You're not going to walk out here on the streets of Roner Park and you're going to find people that are committing the unpardonable sin. And neither in the time of Jesus in, in Judea or Galilee or Samaria or, or other places where the apostles and Jesus preached on a daily basis did you find people commonly committing this particular sin. Now, if you'll turn over uh, to the book of John, I don't, you don't really need to do this, but if you turned over there and you looked in the book of John, you'll find out there in chapter 3 that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about how a man is born again. And there he speaks about eternal life, and he says, here's what a person must do in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he says to Nicodemus in John 3, 16, we all know the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth not on him, or he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not on him is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So as we read that, we see that Jesus never told any person that here's what you must do, that before you can be saved, what you need to do is you need to check up and you need to find out if you have committed the unpardonable sin. Because if you've committed that sin... Scratch John 3.16. It doesn't count for you. But we never find Jesus telling people that. We never find the apostles preaching any such thing. In, in John chapter 9, we have a, just a very blatant example of the rejection of Christ's miracles. This is when the Pharisees refused to believe in the healing of the blind man. And this was so plain that Jesus had healed him. It was evident that it came under the power of God. And yet you remember the Pharisees refused to believe and they threw that man out of the temple. And so Jesus then, in, in looking over that situation, he never said 
that these people committed the unpardonable sin. And I'm sure that when we think about the most heinous sin that was ever committed, we would think that that would probably be the actual beating and the crucifixion of Christ. What could be more what could be worse than the crucifixion of Christ? There Jesus hung on the cross in humiliation. There was cruel mocking. Uh, there, there was the beating. And yet Jesus said at the end of that, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so sin after sin of the worst sort were committed, and yet Jesus never referred to any of those sins as being sins that were unpardonable. And so an evangelist that would stand up night after night and plead in an invitation for you not to commit the unpardonable sin, he's doing something that neither Jesus nor the apostles ever did. They didn't do that. So what does that tell us about sin? Well, first it tells us that forgiveness is not restricted to the amount of sin or restricted by the amount of sin. In other words, you're never going to reach a limit that you have committed so many sins that now you're beyond the limit and God is no longer going to forgive you. In fact, the Bible teaches that our forgiveness of one another is based on the fact that God does forgive all sin. Regardless of all the sins that have been committed, God will forgive them. When Jesus was teaching on the subject, he was responding to a question from Peter. We find it in Matthew chapter 18. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Well, that doesn't mean that you get 490 chances, and when you're done with 490, then all your chances are over. That, that's not what it means. This is actually an expression of limitless forgiveness. Now, when, when Jesus went on after that statement, he gave another parable, and he talked about a man who, who was forgiven a large debt that he owed. He was forgiven a great debt that he owed, and yet he was unwilling to forgive someone who owed him a lesser debt. A debt. And so the principle is that God's forgiveness, in God's forgiveness, he's forgiven us a mountain of sins. I mean, sins that, that caused the death of his very own son. And if God was willing to do that, then he says, then certainly you ought to forgive someone else who sinned against you, and they've committed sins of a far lesser degree than the sin that committed against Christ. So God never concerns himself with unpardonable sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of all sin. And so that would show us then that this sin in Matthew chapter 12, it would have to be something so unusual that this is not even mentioned in the ordinary course of conversation concerning sin. Now, secondly, forgiveness is not restricted by the extent of sin. And by that I mean sins that are committed to their worst conclusions. For example, there are sins that are committed with great brutality. If you think about when somebody kills someone, now murder, that's a terrible sin. It's a terrible sin against man, against God, against society. But aren't we even more outraged when we hear that there has been a torturous murder committed? What about when we hear that someone killed someone and before they did that, they burned them with cigarettes or they had their eyelids slit, had their fingers cut off or had all their teeth pulled out? What about somebody who would saw off a limb while a person was still living? We would all agree that's a heinous crime. And, and we would think, well, well, a person who would do that, they deserve the hottest part of hell. 
And yet, do you know that there are people in prisons who have committed such crimes, and they've actually been reached with the gospel of Christ? Someone has come in and preached the gospel to them, and those people, some of them, have been saved before. Now, we would wonder, well, how could that happen? I mean, how could they be saved? Now, they obviously have to have to endure the uh, temporary, temporal consequences of their sin. They have to stay in prison. Maybe they'll go to the electric chair if they're still doing that. But they're eternally saved for heaven. So how can that be? How can that possibly be? Well, what it shows us is that the worst of the worst can be saved. And if that weren't true, do you know what we would do? We would start to gauge people by the sins that they have committed. And we would say, well, if you have committed this sin or this terrible of a sin or to this extent of that sin, then you couldn't be saved. And we would begin to look at ourselves and and compare ourselves to the person down the street who's not socially acceptable. And we would say, they can't be saved, but I can be saved. Well, once again, we have to go back and look at the men who crucified Christ. They, 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 They committed the worst sin possible, I would think, in the torture of Jesus Christ. And yet, do you know, there are many people who believe that that centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion detail, that he became a Christian when he saw what happened at the death of Christ. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. So none of these people have committed an unpardonable sin, not a sin for which they couldn't be forgiven. And so when we look over all the candidates there are, who could possibly commit this sin? I mean, where do we find candidates who have committed the sin? Who today has done that? Well, and I'm talking about this sin committed in Matthew 12. So we see the worst of the worst that are in Jesus' day, and yet any of those people could be forgiven. So who is it that's done any worse than they've done? So when we're looking for people who have committed this sin, who are we looking for? When Jesus said nothing more than what we find right here in this chapter. And yet, we're still faced with the reality of the sin. It's a sin that could be committed. It's a sin that's unpardonable. But it has nothing at all to do with anything that I've mentioned so far. Now, let's go on and let's talk about the rejection of the Savior. Now, whatever this sin is, we can see that it can't be just common rejection of the Savior. And we've already described that. Uh, I I might even add this, and and all of you know this, that Paul blasphemed the name of God, and and yet the Bible clearly shows us that Paul became a saved man. He repented of that sin, and God forgave him of the sin. So here in Matthew, though, Jesus says that there is blasphemy against him that doesn't rank as severely as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, you should see that that's going to involve us in a conundrum. I mean, we all believe in the Trinity, don't we? We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We believe they're co-equal and they're co-eternal. So a sin that's committed against Jesus Christ is also a sin against the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And a sin against the Father is a sin against the Son. And a sin against the Holy Ghost is a sin against the Father. So do you see what I mean? You can go round and round and round with that. So how is this possible then that you commit one sin against one that doesn't rank with the sin against another? So how can you have one one sin that's not equally against all persons in the Godhead? Well, I would maintain that in the current age in which we live, it'd be impossible to commit a sin that is not simultaneously against all, against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and is an equal offense against all. 
So that tells us there has to be something even more unusual about this sin. And I believe that this is a sin that can only be committed under very special circumstances. This is a sin that could, committed, could be committed in such a way that you could tell that there is a division in the persons of the Godhead. This is an unequal sin because the consequences are unequal. So how does that work? Well, we really have to go back to the context of the statement. Jesus had just cast out a demon. Now, according to verse number 22, this man was both, both blind and dumb. And the cause of that blindness and dumbness was very clearly the presence of a demon in this man. Those who believed in the miracle that Jesus did and those who did not believe in the miracle that he was the Son of God all agreed that what was wrong with this man was caused by this demon. And then when Jesus cast the demon out of the man, the Scripture says that he both spake and he saw. So there's very clear evidence that whatever Jesus did, whether he's God or whether he's not, there's clear evidence that the devil is no longer in this man. Now, let's notice here first then, the people recognize the truth. Look at verse number 23. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? And by son of David, they, that would be the same thing as saying, Is not this the Messiah? Isn't this the one we're looking for? Isn't he God? And so they understood that Jesus was able to do this because he did it under the power and the authority of God that was in him. And so that tells us that anyone, anyone that was there, they could have come to the very same conclusion. So we're not talking about here that something, something that is so obscure and so hard to find out. There's a great deal of doubt about what actually happened. Reasonable men could look and see what Jesus did, and they're not going to be confused about what actually happened. Now notice then, t secondly, the Pharisees rebelled against the truth. So it's very clear what's happened here. But the Pharisees said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So here you have all the evidence that right before their eyes, but in spite of that evidence, in spite of what was so clearly designed to show that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God, yet they refused to believe. They rebelled against what their eyes could see. So they knew the truth. They saw the truth. The evidence is all there. So, so we're not talking about there can be some other explanation. There is no other explanation. And they refused to believe. They rebelled against it because they did that for the purpose of turning the people against Jesus Christ. So Jesus then goes into an explanation. And he shows them why this position that they're taking is totally unreasonable. It doesn't even make sense for anyone to believe this. So Jesus is not here trying to convince ignorant men. He's not dealing with unlearned men. He's telling these people that what you are doing here is willful. It's not just plain ignorance. This is willful, deliberate ignorance. So they're learned men. They have no excuse for this reaction. So then Jesus begins to advance an argument. Let me summarize his argument for you. He says, number one, if I cast out devils using the devil's power, then that means that the devil is fighting against himself. It's hard enough. To, to, for a kingdom to try to fight against an outside enemy. But when you get to fight, have to fight one from that's within, that's doubly hard. How are you going to overcome an enemy that's within? And so his reasoning is, if the devil keeps doing this, if he keeps casting out his own emissaries, if he casts out demons himself, then very soon the devil is going to be out of business. 
Number two, he says, if the power doesn't come from Satan, it must come from God because there are only two spirits. There is a spirit of God and there is a demonic spirit. There's only two. Then he says, if I cast out this spirit by the power of God's kingdom, then that must mean that God's kingdom is in your presence. Number four, if God's kingdom is in your presence, then I must be the Messiah of that kingdom. Then he added really just another little piece of the argument because he says, if I cast out devils by Beelzebub, then how do the Jews cast out devils? And uh, if I'm doing it by the power of the devil, then they must be doing it by the power of the devil as well. So what Jesus shows them is the untenable nature of these statements. It shows that they didn't make this argument because they didn't have the ability to understand what was going on. They are simply telling a malicious lie. They're trying to discredit the Son of God. Now, number three, let's sum it up here. Number three is the reasonable sentence. Let's read verses 31 and 32 again. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. So the peculiar circumstance of this miracle is that Jesus is standing right there in the flesh. Jesus is doing miracles that proclaim him to be the Son of God. Now, we remember that John says in the book of John that there, there were many signs and wonders that Jesus did. And he said, these things were given in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So, there are people that are standing there. They recognize that this is Jesus. And this is why they said, is not this the Son of David? Now, since Jesus is there in the flesh, both the people and the Pharisees, they all recognize that there is a spiritual power that's at work here. Now, that's evident. Because physical men don't work in a spiritual world. A physical man can't simply cast out a demon. He can't work in the, in the supernatural world. So they have to agree that there is a spirit at work here. There is some spirit going on here. Because a spirit can only have the power to cast another spirit out. Well, Jesus said that a person who claims that this kind of work is done by the Holy Spirit, casting out demons is the power, done by the power of the devil and that the work of the Holy Spirit is... In other words, the Holy Spirit is actually doing the devil's work. He says that that is an act of blasphemy. And it's against the Holy Spirit and it won't be forgiven. So why does he say it? Well, first, because it's deliberate denial. It's not because there's a misunderstanding. It's not because we have something here that's so deep that reasonable men can't understand it. This is when a person sees all the evidence... He's thought about it. He's considered it. Everything is right there before his eyes. And for whatever reason, pride, position, obstinacy, whatever it might be, he deliberately denies it. But then it goes further than that. This is determined denial. Because here we also have something that is so malicious that it actually seeks to lead people astray. Uh, and so, uh, astray. And so, These people will not believe in Christ because they've been led astray that Christ is the Savior of the world. The the Pharisees don't want them to believe it. So they stand right there in the presence of the God-man, and they see the Holy Spirit working, and they say, it's the Holy Spirit who works in the kingdom of Satan. Satan's work is done by the Holy Spirit. Well, is it possible then for, 
for us today to commit the unpardonable sin. And have you committed the unpardonable sin? Anybody here committed this? Well, I think we can see there are three prerequisites for committing the unpardonable sin. Number one, Jesus must be present in the flesh so there is a distinct manifestation between the persons of the Godhead. Number two, it must be in the age of miracles. And number three, the miracle must be performed by Jesus but purposely attributed to the power of Satan. Now, let's look at each one of those. First, Jesus must be present in the flesh so there is a direct manifestation between the persons of the Godhead. Now, I think everybody here knows this, that in our day, we don't see Jesus in the flesh. Jesus actually dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And so it's impossible for us to commit a sin that would be against Jesus that is not equally against the Holy Spirit and vice versa. Jesus made a distinction here in Matthew because all sins, he said, that are committed against him while he's in the flesh, those sins can be forgiven. Now, think again about what happened at the cross. Uh, There we have a heinous sin, and yet Jesus offers forgiveness. So we, we couldn't sin this sin today because Jesus is not in the flesh. Secondly, it has to be in the age of miracles. I mean, someone must be able to do this miracle. A miracle has to have occurred. What we find here, what happened in Matthew 12, that's in the aftermath of a miracle. And that had to be claimed to be under the power of the Son of God, the Son of God doing this. Now, now today, there aren't any miracles of this kind that are being done. I know that there are people who claim that they can cast out demons, but that's not possible today. That ended with Jesus and the apostles. Today... Demons are exercised only through prayer. That's the only way. Now, thirdly, the miracle must be performed by Jesus, but purposely attributed to the power of Satan. So if you don't have the first two prerequisites, then you certainly can't have the last one. Time after time, Jesus performed miracles in the New Testament, but this is the one specific time that Jesus warned the Pharisees about this sin. Here was the Son of God. He's in the flesh. He just performed this miracle, and the Pharisees willingly, obstinately, defiantly said that this was done by the power of Satan. And so they sinned against the Holy Spirit. It was blasphemy against him, and Jesus said it won't be forgiven. So you see then that there's peculiar circumstances here. Jesus never talked about this at other times. He gave countless demonstrations that he was the Son of God, John said that if he could write down all the things that Jesus did, all that he said and did, then the world couldn't contain all the books that could be written about it. And in what we have written, the miracles that John recorded in the book of John, and we find in other places, not once do we find except this one place where this sin was ever brought up. So the unpardonable sin is not mentioned in connection with any of, other, of, other, uh, of Christ's other miracles. So what this tells me then is that that sin was not common then. And certainly it can't be common today. And so if a preacher ever gets up and he begs and he pleads with you, please don't commit the unpardonable sin. Don't worry about it being this sin. Not this sin in Matthew chapter 12, because this sin cannot be committed. The the prerequisites of this particular sin are impossible for us to meet. So then we ask a question, well, is there an unpardonable sin? Well, I say that every sin is unpardonable unless you trust Christ as the Savior. You're not going to be forgiven of any sin. Now, if you 
hear the message of Jesus Christ and you reject him, then you stand in aggravated condemnation. I mean, the condemnation is worse because you've heard. But the one defining sin that sends somebody to hell is not the sin of unbelief or anything comparable to that. Any sin can send you to hell. And so what a person must do, of course, is to repent of all sin and trust Christ. Now, finally then, can you commit the unpardonable sin? I mean, the one that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 12. And the answer is no. Unequivocally, it's no. Because if you even ask the question, then that's proof that you haven't committed it. Now, that is actually proof that the Holy Spirit is still working. The Holy Spirit has still left something in you that he's working with if you even ask the question. If you look at these people in Jesus' time, they would never ask the question. Have I committed the unpardonable sin, Jesus? They wouldn't ask that because they didn't care. I mean, they'd soon say that Jesus had a devil as to say the sky is blue. So they don't care whether they've committed the unpardonable sin. But you, if you were to ask about it, have I committed it? Then that's proof the Holy Spirit's working. You're, you're not beyond the pale of redemption. So you're not going to commit this sin here if you think even think about it at all. So here's the point, folks. There is no sin that we can commit today that Jesus will not forgive us of. If we put our trust, our faith in him, there is no sin that you could ever commit that you are not going to be forgiven of. We have cleansing through the blood of Christ. So I can promise everybody here tonight, if you trust Jesus, you will be saved. And I don't have to add any if, ands, or buts to that. You just trust Jesus, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. And some of these things are a little bit difficult for us to understand at times. But if we see how, how these things work out and, and study the scriptures, we can come to the right conclusions about this. And Lord, we thank you that you do forgive us of all sins. We give you the honor and the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.